this is Joe and TJ with another episode of our One Thing series. Our desire is that our One Thing series truly helps you to lead better and grow faster. Every month on our podcast, we feature a great guest always on the topic of leadership, and we blast it out to you from the schoolhouse302.com. Thank you, TJ. Please share this with other leaders you know that are looking and craving to get better. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Here we are with our guest, Nathan Maynard. Thank you for being on the show, Nathan. We are thrilled you're here. Thanks for letting me come on. Absolutely. So this episode, we're focused on innovation, and we wanted really, though, to look at this from a different lens. And we couldn't think of anyone better to have on our show than Nathan, talking about restorative practices, talking about discipline, but really framing it from an innovative lens, knowing that old practices don't always work and we have to be innovative in our thinking. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Nathan? Thanks for that, Joe. Our guest for this episode is Nathan Maynard. Nathan is a youth advocate, educational leader, and change maker. He's the co-author of the Washington Post best-selling and award-winning book called Hacking School Discipline, Nine Ways to Create a Culture of Empathy and Responsibility Using Restorative Justice. Nathan also is the co-founder of Behavior Flip, the first restorative behavior management software. He studied behavioral neuroscience at Purdue University and has been facilitating restorative practices for over 15 years. He was awarded Youth Worker of the Year through dedicating his time with helping underserved and underprivileged youth involved with the juvenile justice system in Indiana. He's on the co- he's a founding administrative team that opened Purdue University's first high school in 2017 called Purdue Polytechnic High School, serving youth in inner city Indianapolis, Indiana. Prior to his four years as a school administrator, he was a youth worker and program director in a youth residential treatment care center. He's passionate about addressing the school-to-prison pipeline crisis and closing the achievement gap through implementing trauma-informed behavioral practices. Nathan has expertise in dialectical behavior coaching, motivational interviewing, positive youth development, restorative justice, and trauma-informed building practices to assist with creating positive school climates. He now runs a team of people who do restorative implementation work called the Restorative Group, where you can check them out at restorativegroup.org. Okay, Nathan, we want to dive into this conversation about leadership and innovation in schools. Um, What Joe and I contend and have written about on our blog and in other spaces is that innovation can be defined by open dialogue, risk-taking, and diversity. And it's those three things that build a culture of innovation in schools, open dialogue, risk-taking, and diversity, diversity amongst the staff, diversity amongst the team, and value and diversity uh, uh, with with everything we do. Looking at discipline practices differently, working to change behavior, but identifying what practices are and are not working is tough work. It's work that you do in schools across our country and really around the globe. 
we'd like to learn a little bit about innovation from you because over the past 15 years, you've been implementing what is very innovative in schools in terms of breaking these old traditions with our codes and implementing new ways to build relationships with youngsters that we think does fit the category of open dialogue, risk-taking, and, um, and diversity work. So we start there. How can leaders support an environment of innovation, particularly on how they approach this concept of discipline and equity? What advice do you have and what are you seeing that's making the biggest difference through innovative practices in schools? And yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I love those three pillars that you two came up with. I think that's really, you know, embodies a lot of this work. When I think about innovation, a lot of times I think about, um, you know, not just coming up with the idea, but the, the systems behind it and how to take an idea to fruition. And I think when we're thinking about this innovation in the restorative practices implementation, the systems work that needs to address, um, looking at you know equitable systems, opportunity gaps that may arise, I, I think a big component of it is to be a good listener throughout this. Being a good listener is not just looking at the quantitative data, it's looking at the qualitative data, sort of that street data with, the, with who we're serving, our educators, our students, the families, the community. When we're getting those voices involved in the process, when being a good listener involved with this, we can figure out how to take an initiative forward. I think a lot of times when we're starting a new initiative in schools, what I've heard, what I've experienced, what I've seen is sometimes there's an external group that has something evidence-based and they push their training forward. Doing something like that may have some initial you know, tie-ins some buy-ins and, and getting people there. But when you're thinking about systems work, you have to take into account that there's already a rich tapestry of things taking place. When you have a rich tapestry of things taking place and you're doing systems work, you want to be able to listen to everyone, come up with the ideas together, co-construct it, and then have fidelity checks in, in that involvement. A lot of times with restorative practices, which was derived from the indigenous culture, where they would come together as a village community, address issues, and it wasn't just the chief or, or the leader of the village that was solving that, the entire village solved it together. So then if it fails, it's not just on the chief or that leader, it, it's saying, hey, we need to come together as a village and organization and change something and do this together. When we're thinking about Classroom innovation, I like to think of those as little micro communities. When we're trying to do something innovative as an educator in the classroom community, what do we do to buy in the students and the families involved in that process? I love the circles with restorative practices. When we're thinking about school sites or even district implementation, we do similar practices. That's more of a, another micro community, but just a little bit larger. We involve the voice, we become good leaders, we co-construct those goals together. And by doing that, we can create innovation from within. And then as leaders, we support that, support the mission that we, we all co-constructed together. It's excellent, uh, Nathan. And I want to back up just a little bit, if you don't mind, because I could immediately, you know, hear some of our listeners thinking, 
why did you start with systems? Why so heavy systems, structures, systems thinking? And then really, if we're going to understand that, um, if you can dive into the systemic issues surrounding, you know, discipline, how we approach it. But I could see some of our listeners wondering, why start there? Why the systems? Why the structures? Yeah. And, and I think that when I start thinking about systems, I think about ways to sustain something. We know in education, you know, there's a lot of different new initiatives that get moving forward. And sometimes our, our educators come to the table excited, you know, has that initial spark to do something different. But, you know, then it lasts one year, it lasts two years, then there's a new program, there's a new initiative that comes forward. Um, sometimes it's district level sort of pulling that in or school site level. But a lot of times, if we're thinking about these new initiatives keep rolling in, but we're not thinking about doing systems changes, we're exhausting our teachers, we're exhausting sort of the, the system that we're trying to support as a whole. So when we're looking at these systems work, coming into something without showing respect to what's already been done ends up getting more resistance. And we're thinking about restorative practices, you know, the intentionality around that, there's a lot of dispositions that go into how we handle discipline overall. And just a you know, quick definition for discipline, because there's a lot of connotations out there. You know, discipline for us is that root word of discipline, which is disciple to learn and to teach. So what are we teaching through these practices and working this through? So if we're trying to change those dispositions from a punishment you know, connotation of uh, what discipline is to the connotation of to learn and to teach with discipline, we need to be pushing those dispositions. And the only way we'll push those dispositions is if we get all of our educators to come to the table and look at what's what's currently there and be a part of it. A lot of the systems work that we do with the restorative group, um, you know, I want to give my colleague a, a big shout out here, Dr. Luke Roberts out of Cambridge University. He studied systems complexity. And me as a restorative practitioner, you know, for several years, worked as a youth worker in education, like TJ was saying, you know, I, I didn't understand all the systems complexities at first. And then Luke and I started collaborating together. And Luke always says, if we don't start with the systems, the 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 longevity of that implementation is probably not going to be there. The, the, the buy-in is probably not going to be there. Um, when stuff starts getting tough, we move back to what we're used to. So systems work helps us have support for our educators. And we know we need a lot of support for our educators right now. So I think at the heart of innovation, any innovation in schools, you know, obviously we would consider your work around equity and your work around restorative practices to be innovative. Um, you are, you know, the system itself is doing what it's always done and you're up against these mindset changes. And you've talked a little bit about that, but I'd like to dig in a little bit more, double click on the how. Um, because we also know that there's a buy-in myth and not everybody's going to believe before everybody changes their practices. So what do you say to school administrators who are like, look, I'm up against a culture here that doesn't support innovation and definitely doesn't support um, restorative practices. They think that kids do need to be punished for quote unquote bad behavior in school. Where can you begin to chip away at that mindset, Nathan, that helps people see that we need to do things differently or maybe try something even if they don't believe yet yeah and and that's that's the million dollar question to get this work sort of um in there 
Um, because a lot of times when we go into it, you know, we may say, hey, just just try this or just do this for a minute or or go into it. But we know doing restorative practices that it's not just about a strategy, it's about internalizing this. So then when a situation comes up, our disposition doesn't go from the students doing this to get underneath my skin, you know, this disposition of blame and shame, but really the disposition of they need support, they need an opportunity for growth, they need some coaching. So I think that, you know, where I start when we're looking at sort of fixed dispositions or a system that isn't ready for change, what I like to do first is find a commonality within a goal. And a lot of times a really common goal that we all want as educators, youth workers overall is peace. You know, we want peaceful classrooms, we want peaceful schools. Um, the way that we get to that peace can be in a lot of different forms, but we want peaceful schools. So then when we start to think about what we're currently doing, is that getting us peaceful schools or not? And if it's not, that's when this innovation can come. So the process that we do for this and something that, you know, I do this with, with students as well as systems work is utilizing cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is finding that goal, finding out what we're currently doing, and then us as the leader, not connecting the dots, but letting the teams connect the dots. So then when the teams start to realize that we want peace, all of our teachers want peace, but yet we're doing fear-based discipline, which causes dysregulation with the human brain, especially with our students that don't have fully regulated brains, fully developed brains. We're, we're doing something that's not matching up to our goal, so we need to do something different. And that's when it goes into sort of that term I was saying, that co-create. When we co-create this goal together, what ends up happening is they connected the dots, they co-created it. So then it's a, it's a process that we're all involved with. It's not just the leaders, not just the educators, and it's focusing on those systems, but it's getting everyone to come to the table. And a lot of times I see leaders, they're like, you know, let's start out with a book study over something, or let's start out with some open dialogue conversations. I love open dialogue conversations. I think that's great. I do think that finding a common goal finding where we're currently at and letting them connect the dots through that cognitive dissonance is probably the easiest way to get the ball rolling. Nathan, very straightforward question, because really I'm just curious about yeah. this. What would you say is the most misunderstood aspect of restorative work, restorative practices? Yeah, I, I think that the miss, the most misunderstood um, thing around it is there's no consequences or it's a, a soft way to handle discipline. I think when we're looking at restorative practices, a lot of times it ups the responsibility because it brings them to the table. I've had so many students over the years, you know, say, I don't want to do this stuff. Just send me home or just send me that in-school suspension room. They didn't want to come to the table and fix what they've done because that's tough. And that's not something that's currently being modeled a lot on social media that our, our kids are taking in, our families are consuming. So when we're trying to think about those consequences, our consequences are actually brings up that responsibility because you have to fix what you've done wrong. You've got to fix the harm. And when we teach them how to fix the harm, that's a consequence within that self. It's not about just apologizing every single time we do it, because then what ends up happening is we have a permissive discipline system because we're doing the same different practices. When we're doing interventions, Number one thing is to be consistent with those interventions, but also be progressive with those teaching. It's not the first time a student messes up, they have to apologize. Now the second time they apologize, now the third time, or the first time they apologize, then the second time they go down to the admin's office. It's about doing progressive consequences that continue to teach and building off of empathy. 
I like to teach empathy, like taking a rock and dropping it to a body of water. When you do it, ripples occur. Those are the stakeholders, those impacts of those different behaviors. So I'm thinking about progressive teaching consequences. I may start out and teach with that first, um, you know, ripple, the first stakeholder, the first stakeholder may be the teacher, maybe the, the classroom, maybe the student as is th themselves. And then from there, I progress and I continue to build that up until I'm helping and co coaching, supporting and giving opportunities for growth for my students. So you talk about growth for students, you've talked about um, learning uh, from mistakes and, you know, trying not to make them again versus just having a consequence or a punishment. Can you tell us um, what are some of the other benefits or byproducts are when schools adopt this mentality around like restorative justice for certain, but also equity and just innovation, risk-taking, trying something new to do something different than we've always done in the past? Um, what are the benefits like what do you see when schools really kind of go all in with innovation and some of the practices you're talking about? Yeah, I think that the, the biggest goal that we have with these practices and what we see a lot of is that increases the increase of sense of belonging, not just for our students, but for our educators, because now we're doing processes that are not based out of fear. If we think about our, our boss, you know, let's say that we showed up you know, late to work three times in a row. Um, no, and then after the third time, there was no conversations. It was just a, a write up or there was something bigger that took place. You know, we're not going to feel safe in that process. So our sense of belonging now decreases. So when we start to do something that's doing equity and inclusion work as well, we understand that that also increases that sense of belonging because we're looking at something different. There's systems of oppression that do take place that have taken place. For, for years, and there's transmissional ways that that impacts our students and our families, even if it's not based off of our relationships that we currently are having. So if we're not taking a deeper dive in and not centering a lot of this work around our historically marginalized populations, what ends up happening is they continue to be marginalized, the systems continue to oppress that voice to be elevated into it. And I hear a lot about, you know, voice and choice, voice and choice, but we need to make sure that is a part of that sense of belonging. So TJ, back to your you know, full circle, it's about increasing that sense of belonging, that safety, and just making schools happier and, and just healthier around. You know, when I see schools where, you know, the, the educator needs to come firm on the student and they elevate their voice, um, they do a practice that may cause some fear, you know, that does not feel safe. That wouldn't feel safe for me if I was a student in there. I try to humanize a lot of the stuff when I'm being empathetic to other, you know, systems and what's taking place. That wouldn't feel good for even the educator because that doesn't create long-lasting change. We don't see a lot of good Good drops in recidivism around punitive discipline, but we see great drops in recidivism with restorative practices. And that's why it's an evidence-based approach, but it's 80% of the time being proactive and 20% of the time being responsive and reactive. It's not just all reactive strategies. Nathan, that's excellent. Appreciate the data too, because I think that's where all of this lands ultimately. What works and that's kind of at the heart of why we wanted this conversation today with the idea of innovation, because so often we continue practices regardless if they're working or not, um, but they speak to certain elements of control. They speak to elements of potential like authority, like we're managing a situation, but not necessarily changing behavior. And so I appreciate 
um, what you just said about recidivism and how that really impacts um, the student and the entire school altogether. Switching gears, Nathan, you mentioned Luke uh, from Cambridge, how that's affected you. Um, digging deeper into that, um, who is one person or group who you follow for either knowledge or inspiration? And where could we find them? This could still be within like the house of restorative practices and discipline, but also can just be really about leadership and, you know, where you're going for your own, you know, drive your own inspiration. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, there's, there's a lot of people that I pull information from and, and learn from. I think that that that's what makes a good leader, um, you know, great because you continue to bring information in. Um, you know, I, I think on the professional level, I think that the leader that I would recommend that I pull the most information from is Dr. Luke Roberts, um, you know, in, in his work around systems complexity. Um, Luke had a really interesting story. You know, he was actually a, a lawyer in London. Um, he was um, speaking at a conference around how restorative justice will never work in education. He didn't believe it. He said that, you know, there's never going to be ways that this can be sustainable and to do it. And there's a representative there from Cambridge University that said, hey, Luke, I believe that you're wrong. They had a conversation said, hey, you should come over to Cambridge and study this. So Luke went in there and he's, um, you know, studied it. And now he's came up with the way that we implement stuff and the way that we work with our systems work. But it's very different than just the typical restorative practices, restorative justice, because it's based out of science, based out of that. Um, you know, Luke's on Twitter. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that he puts out there there. He's also got, you know, he's on our website. Um, he's got his own personal website that he does. He's got a team over there that he does a lot of work. He does a lot of work in the UK prison systems around like anti-racism work, as well as, um, you know, work in schools and supporting them around the equity, as well as this restorative practices and sustainability, you know, but Luke has all these like great insights a lot. You know, Luke was telling me the other day, he was, you know, him and I were just, you know, catching up and, and talking and he was like, yeah, I've been working with this you know, this jail for a while, and there's been high levels of violence, and they don't really know what's taking place with these levels of violence. And I was saying, you know, when there's no other game to play, people play the game of conflict. And I think we see the same thing as educators, you know, us three, you know, we see that a lot within education. So it's just, you know, Luke's a brilliant guy. So I definitely recommend him and I pull a lot of knowledge from him. Thanks for that, Nathan. We'll link back to um, Luke's work in the show notes for any of our listeners who want to dig in a little bit further, follow him on Twitter and so forth. So we really appreciate that. And the story that, that goes with that in terms of sounds like changing people's minds and also using evidence to, to support the work and move it forward. Yeah. Next um, one thing question here is what's the one thing that people should try to do on a regular basis that might make a difference in their day or life? Anything that you would recommend? Yeah. So just on my own personal journey, I've been doing a lot more, you know, self-reflection of who I am because, you know, what we regulate ourselves go into, goes into our work a lot. And I think that you know, working in as a youth worker and in schools and now doing this implementation work, you know, sometimes we're not taking care of ourselves. Sometimes, sometimes we're not doing that. So I think one thing to be, you know, right on a regular basis, continue and maintain is just be aware of our self-talk. I think a lot of times we're not aware of our self-talk and it starts to really impact not just, you know, our perspectives on things, but really just our, our relationships overall. So I think if we're aware of that self-talk, you know, that really helps, you know, open up the door. Um, you know, I love the book, the Four uh, Agreements book by Don Miguel um, Ruiz. 
Um, amazing book, but that really helped open up my doors to be aware of that self-talk and what that's about. Now, Nathan, do you follow anything in particular or formula to regulate that, or have you just become conscious throughout the day? Um, I'm also a big fan of Four Agreements. Um, yeah. I, I, despite the fact that I first heard it from Tom Brady, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> I, I forget he was on an interview or something. So, I, you know, I, outside yeah. of that, I'll forgive everything else. But I'm I'm right there with you. It's an excellent book, and and he has he has actually has a couple other excellent books as well. Um, but is there something you do to help remind you throughout the day? Because, you know, sometimes you go through the whole day and then, you know, you haven't regulated. Yeah. Yeah. And I do a couple different things. So, you know, the biggest thing that I do is I do regular check-ins with myself throughout the day. Um, I practice a lot of mindfulness work rooted in dialectical behavioral therapy, um, you know, from just, you know, vagus nerve, deep breathing, um, just being aware. But I think the, the time when I'm most aware of my self-talk is actually after I make a mistake. When I do something that I mess up on, or, or I can tell that, you know, I, I tag someone else's emotion with something, I start to be aware, like, okay, what, what was I saying to myself before that? You know, what can I do to, you know, repair this or fix this? Like, I just start talking a lot. But I think that after a mistake, you know, I'm really aware of where that got to, how did my dysregulation go into it? Um, but also just regular check-ins with myself with mindfulness work and, and the breathing. And, you know, even, I mean, I, I even love the, um, you know, one thing that I, I do, like sometimes like after I get done from a long day or something is um, I'll take a bucket, uh, a big bowl, I put ice cold water in a bunch of ice cubes and I just dunk my head in it for 30 seconds and I just hold my breath and pull it back out. And by doing that, that triggers something called the dive reflex in mammals, which really, you know, targets your, your parasympathetic and your sympathetic nerve system. So it really activates to calm yourself down. So that's my big, my big weapon that I use to sort of calm myself down. But I do, you know, regular sort of check-ins with myself, but I'm really aware of self-talk after mistakes. Excellent. I'm going to try the dive reflex in mammals, like in an hour. Um, I'll have to inbox you, let you know how it goes. I'm a little frightened. To be honest. I wish you said it was like lukewarm water and I could be comfortable. Yeah. Um, but the ice cubes and the cold, I'm certainly uh, afraid. It's, it's, it's different, but I mean, after a while you get, you know, it's, you like almost crave it because you start realizing that you calm down. I just do it for 30 seconds and then come up, breathe for a little bit, then do it a couple more times as I start feeling regulated. But you know, it's, it's better than the, the ice cold showers at the end. So I like just the face. <laughs> Excellent. Nathan, um, what's one thing that you want to know or be able to do that you don't already? Yeah, I think that the biggest thing with my current work and what I'm doing is I think that coming up with a way to better get in, you know, sort of this street data, which is like the, the voices of our students and our families involved in schools and involved in districts. I think a lot of times there's a lot of innovation that comes from this where, you know, surveys or phone calls or mailing letters, but I, I hear a lot of leaders say like, I struggle with getting everyone's voice involved. And when we're thinking about equity work and centering this work around our historically marginalized populations that may already have a transmissional relationship with us, based off of their history, they may not be coming to the table to share how they're feeling, how they're doing this. So I think one thing that I would really like to learn how to get better at is how can schools really elevate the street data of where the families are, the students are, of all the students, so there can be better systems work overall. 
really like that concept street data. And I think leaders should think about that just period in terms of knowing more, listening more, having a better pulse on the school. So there's definitely a big takeaway there. What's that based on? I know there's a book called street data. Is that a book that you've read or is there another, is this something that's going to be talked about more? Do you think in this space around equity and understanding school culture, this concept of street data, where's that coming from? Where can we point people to? Yeah, there's a, there's a book called street data. Um, uh, I forget the author's name. I believe her first name is Shane um, that wrote that book. Um, But you know, I've, I've, heard about the book and i've heard it specifically from my friend joe trust who does a lot of work in this space as well and he's you know talked a little bit about some different components um i've heard about it through um another one of our colleagues i'm liz i'm out of bakersfield california that does some work with us through the restorative group and you know working stuff through so she talks about how to elevate that voice and get that involved but i currently haven't read shane's book yet but i'm i'm going to it's on my list That's great. But the concept itself is um, uh, taking a closer look. um, What you said Liz is talking about and just understanding the community a little bit better. I think that that's just something that we could do it better. We're going to link to the book um, in the show notes as well. Um, That's great. Yeah. What's one thing that has led to or continues to support your growth? as a leader that others can replicate. And I, I really like this question for you, Nathan, because um, you've just done a lot of work in the last 15 years. I mean, at the, at the forefront, I think, of um, leadership around restorative practices and equity in schools, uh, really one of the leading experts, I think, on earth about that topic. But you got to continue to support your own growth as a leader, what are you doing to make that happen besides sticking your face in a bowl of water with ice? <laughs> yeah, that, that definitely helps. But I think it goes back to, you know, just, just being a really, really attentive listener, uh, hearing what's working, what's not working, just going, not going in and just, you know, bulldozing, a, a you know, a systems, you know, that that's taking place, but just really listening to what's taking place you know, and, and collaborating with, with people, you know, left and right. I mean, we have a, you know, a Facebook group, it's called just the school discipline Facebook group. Um, but, you know, we have about 60,000 educators in there. And I mean, like, I learned so much from just reading the comments sometimes and, and hearing from other people, you know, I learned so much from just being in, and talking to small groups of teachers doing some of the systems work and, and interviewing them. So I think that the way that I continue to get better and, and, and continue to improve is just being a good listener, taking that information in and, you know, just honoring other people's ideas around this type of work too. Cause I, you know, that's why I mentioned Luke so much. Cause you know, he's really pushed my thinking quite a bit through this. Um, but yeah, just being a really good listener and taking in other people's strategies, working through with them, hearing how things have worked, you know, collaborating, brainstorming together around different things. Cause you know, what, what I'm realizing by doing this work, you know, not just here in the, the United States, but you know, internationally and working through, it's very similar type of things that pop up. 
um, you know, and, and all over the world. You know, when I get contacted by, you know, Japan, you know, I've done some work, you know, over there virtually, um, you know, Ecuador, I, you know, I think I mentioned you, TJ, that, you know, I'm going to come down there and work with a school down there and did some other stuff in Europe before quite a few times. You know, it's always similar things taking place. But the cool thing is there's always similar great practices taking place, too. So I think it's about elevating everybody else sort of in the field and continue to sort of streamline what this is about so we can be more intentional with this work. And then just something that popped in my mind when you were talking, you know, reg regarding street data, I'm also a big fan of qualitative data. I did a lot of early work um, at the University of Delaware in my doctoral program. It was more, though, on um, assessments and collecting that from teachers and how they were doing assessments. And then now when you're saying about honoring conversations, listening, how do you vet? some of that because I, I can hear audience thinking you know you know i listen to a lot of people how do you vet the merit of what you're hearing yeah and, and i think that sometimes when i hear that it depends where this is coming from sometimes because there's always dynamics taking place too from from leadership from you know you know just power dynamics of privilege overall too so i think that if there is a dynamic there, there there's a difference in some component it's not really up to us to determine the merit of that, because if we do, we're put saying our views are going to be, you know, we know best. And, and a lot of times when we look at the way that our systems have been running that has marginalized some of our historically marginalized populations through our discipline practices, such as the school to prison pipeline, we start to realize that it's because we may have questioned some of that street data for a long time, right? We might say like, oh, is this real? Is this really happening? Is this taking place? So I think when we're thinking about the, if there's a dynamic at place, let's take it as is. Let's be respectful to it and let's work through it. Um, if there's something that I feel like, you know, and even like if I'm talking to a student, I feel like they tell me something that's not the truth. You know, I, what I do is I always just give them two options with it and, and allow them to sort of co-construct where they would like to go and be like, you know, I'm going to respect what you said and we're going to work through this together. Um, so you're telling me this and this is what I'm going to spend all my energy and attention on. But if it's over here, too, I would love for you to feel safe to come to that. Is there anything I can do to make you feel safe and focusing something around safety instead of just is this real? Because I think that when you have someone that's collecting the assessment data and there's something geared towards that, um, you know qualitative data or quantifiable data, it, it's, it's still fallible, right? And there's still going to be some stuff that may pop up. So I think questioning things to a degree may cause more oppression over those voices than help. I love it. <clears throat> Absolutely love it. Thank you. Appreciate that very much. What's one thing that you used to think that you don't think anymore? So I think sticking to sort of this topic that we were talking about with, with, with data and, you know, overall, I think that because I'm an analytical thinker, you know, when I first started in school, I studied analytical chemistry, I was the pre-med round, then I started working part-time at that residential treatment care center that I started out and worked there for eight years, I really switched my path up to hit the, you know, behavioral neuroscience, but I was all about the data, I was all about the analytics, I was always about that. I think that's where I rated my success too. I was like, okay, I would get this type of grade or I would get this type of uh, score on a standardized test. And I was always shooting for this. I think the more that I start to realize, especially now doing this more on a macro scale, 
that success doesn't have to be tangible. Success can be self-determined because when we're thinking about our own happiness, our own sort of involvement to keep our dispositions from coming out, our regulation from being there, if I want success to be tangible every single time, I may never get there. So success, I think, can be something that's internalized. And if we internalize that success, then we can still continue to grow and, and have this sort of that resilient mindset to work through things. That's pretty awesome. And I think people are going to gravitate towards that, um, especially at the end here of the show. Can you say just a little bit more about the part where you're internalizing success and not using external data to validate that? Like how, how do you do that? Like, what is there a goal setting process or am I getting that all wrong? No, there's definitely goal setting process. Yeah, I and when I think about goal setting process too, I do a lot of like I so like for my personal self because I balance you know those two different you know companies and supporting this sort of work. You know, I do a lot of like time blocking, and in my time blocking, and that sometimes I'll have like metrics of success built into it, but some I always was making those metrics of success tangible, and then I started to realize like if I get to this level, even if I come up with something creative or go through this can pass that on to my team and do that, that's still success because I kept, I, I would beat myself up. You know, I'm a perfectionist. So I would always like stay up late. And, you know, sometimes I would cut down on sleep because I wanted to hit these tangible goals. And I started to realize like that's thrown off my regulation so much. So I think when it's goal setting, time blocking, whatever this may be coming up and constructing what that success looks like, and then you can feel more fulfilled. And, and I used to do this on a a lot smaller level too. When I worked in the juvenile justice system, you know, I, I it, it would beat me up because you know I would you know work with a, a youth for years sometimes in the residential treatment care center and really build a bond with them and their families and you know read about stuff in the newspaper or hear about you know really tragic events take place. And I started like you know it started making me question you know just just humanity overall because it, it just really eats at you. And I started to realize like man you know Nathan there's so many successful stories that you're not going to ever ever hear about. So I need to start determining my own success. So again I started doing that early on but then now to my level that I'm at now of, of doing more system stuff, I, I, I'm going back to those roots of saying I need to determine what my tangible success looks like tangible or, or self you know set up. Yeah, it's really cool because it's about fulfillment. And especially in the work that our listeners do, whether teachers, school leaders, um, a lot of it, you don't see the fruits of your labor and you're not gonna. And so you have to have that feeling of um, fulfillment and success, even when uh, some of our end goals are not things that we're going to see for, for kids in our, in our lifetime, just because they're going to move on and figure things out. Um, in ways that we're never going to know. And, and just knowing that that is the truth about our work in education, I think is inspiring. And I think others will be inspired to hear that you don't need to see a metric point go up to feel like uh, we're making a difference. That's, that's needed in our profession right now, folks, uh, big time. Nathan, this has been awesome. Um, great interview. Uh, people are going to get a ton. We've linked, I'm already linked a bunch in the show notes to books, resources, places people can go. Is there anything else that you would like to add today for listeners? 
I just want to, you know, thank everybody, you know, not just for listening, but just being in education overall. I, I think a lot of times we don't get a lot of uh, that appreciation, especially as leaders, you know, uh, you know, we don't get some of those honest conversations in, in the field. So, you know, just thank you for, for sticking to it and supporting, you know, and again, with those results coming in or, or the self-setup results, you know, either way, we're making so many differences out there. So thank you for just being an educator. Great way to end. Thank you to all educators. There you have it. Another great podcast. Don't forget to follow our blog at theschoolhouse302.com for blog posts, podcasts, video blogs, always on the topic of leadership. And we hope you enjoyed this one thing series on how school leaders can create a culture of innovation, equity, restorative justice, and so much more with Nathan Maidard. Thank you, Nathan. Of course. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Joe, you know what leaders need these days? What's that, TJ? Sleep. A good night's rest. Self-care. We've heard it over and over and over again from our guests on the podcast that you can't pour from an empty cup. Leaders need sleep. One of the number one ways you can replenish yourself and lead better is a good night's sleep. I hear you, but you know what? I'm so tired. I don't even like thinking about, you know, getting a good night's sleep. But, you know, do tell, how do we go about getting better sleep? Well, I think that's part of your problem is you need a better bed. It always starts with the bed. That's why we recommend GhostBed, our sponsor, with 30,000 plus five-star reviews. Their patented sleep and cooling technology gets you to sleep faster and longer than any other bed. That's right. And their handcrafted mattresses come with a hundred and one night at home sleep trial and a two times the industry standard warranty. They're absolutely certain that their beds will work for you. And with free shipping within 24 hours of your purchase, it's fantastic uh, support from the company. And guess what? Just for being a listener at the Schoolhouse 302, you get 30% off with the use of our code SH302 at checkout. You go to ghostbed.com. You get some sleep so that you can lead better and grow faster. You use SH302 at checkout. Absolutely. And last thing, even if you don't need a bed, you're thinking, wow, I would love to try out ghost bed, but I just bought a bed. Refer someone else for a bed at ghostbed.com. You'll get a hundred bucks for helping someone else get a good night's rest. Wow. That's 30% off with SH302 code at ghostbed.com. A hundred bucks for your referral. If you get somebody else a good night's sleep, better sleep for you, better leadership, ghostbed.com. You can't beat it. Ghostbed.com. Mm-hmm.